0: This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey, everybody, this is Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening in to the podcast today. Last week on the podcast, we started the conversation with Don West. He's National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe and our friend Steve Moses. He's a CCW Safe contributor and a well-regarded firearms and self-defense instructor. And we decided to go back to basics and talk about the fundamental elements of the justification for the use of deadly force and that is that the armed defender must have a reasonable belief that they face the imminent threat of great bodily injury or death. There's a few other very specific circumstances where the use of deadly force is allowed. We'll get to that in good time. In the course of that conversation, uh, we defined some of those terms, what great bodily injury is, and we talked about how to identify those elements as an armed defender as a concealed carrier so that you can make those important life or death decisions properly in the moment so you survive that first fight against your attacker and the second fight that you may face uh the legal fight in the aftermath of a self-defense shooting today we're going to carry on that conversation we're going to talk about a few other terms that will impact whether uh, use of deadly force incident is justified. We're gonna talk about the concept of the initial aggressor. We're gonna talk about provocation and how if an armed defender provokes an incident that impedes on their ability to claim justification. Uh, we're talking about the use of deadly force to stop forcible felonies and the perils of using deadly force to protect property. But before we get into all of that, we're going to explore the quirks of the subjective and objective assessment of the reasonable belief. And what that means is that even in a situation where objectively, that is from a third party's perspective, an armed defender might seem perfectly justified in using self-defense subjectively based upon that individual's skill sets and training and knowledge, there may be other options that they could take that would avoid that shooting or preclude the use of deadly force part of that conversation will turn to steve moses and he'll tell us a little bit about the can i shoot may i shoot must i shoot test uh thanks for listening in here's my conversation with don west and steve moses you know now I just wanted to talk about a mindset thing, though, there, Don, because if if you know you have the physical skills and ability to stop an attack without using deadly force, really, technically, even if to an objective observer who doesn't have those skills, you may be legally Judge justified in that the, the, the mindset, heart of it is if you don't need to resort to deadly force to break contact or to stop that attack, that's not really justifiable. The use of deadly force in that circumstance, you know what I'm saying? That's exactly that's so interesting and so intriguing as you drill into
1: this a little bit. Someone watching what's happening to you may feel. If they were in your shoes, you absolutely reasonably believe that the attack is imminently, immediately, right now. And if you don't use deadly force to stop it, you're going to be seriously uh, injured or killed. So it would meet that sort of reasonable test, the objective one from the outside. At the very moment, you could be saying to yourself, you know, I got this. You know, this guy can't can't hurt me. I've got skills. I've got experience. I know what to do. So I am not afraid of great bodily harm or death. And in fact, it would be interesting because you might say that in a police interview after the fact, um, if you did use deadly force, after the fact, the police officer may question you about what was going on. And were you afraid you would die if you didn't you know, defend yourself? And you might in a cavalier sense or maybe even in a sincere sense say, not really. You know, I, I knew I could handle this guy, but, you know, I, I'm not going to take the chance that he might, you know, rough me up a little. Who knows? You know? But you could actually talk your way out of what would otherwise be a very valid, legitimate, objective, uh, objective self-defense claim.
2: Sean, let me share something with you that a fellow instructor, uh, states, uh, can I shoot? May I shoot? Must I shoot? So can I shoot? Well, I can, if the guy's just standing there, of course I can just shoot the guy. Okay. But that's not lawful. If that same guy is on top of me and he's attempting to strangle me or, you know, uh, beat me senseless, uh, I can probably in many instances defend against that lock him down uh do a bump and roll and escape from there so may i shoot him yes do i have to shoot him no Mm -hmm. or must i shoot him Uh, i can't get this guy off of me uh He is in a position where I'm in imminent danger. The only response I have is going to be using a deadly force weapon against him. And to me, this kind of circles back to a couple of the cases we discussed in the back in which a homeowner shot an intruder, if you will, that was attempting to break in the house. I believe both instances Uh, or at least one of those instances, it was by mistake and the homeowner shot that particular person. So could he shoot him? Yes. May he shoot him? Well, he did shoot him and it was considered to be lawfully justified. Must he shoot him? Had he gone back into this bedroom, gotten that hard corner Mm -hmm. with his wife? It may not be that type of situation. And so that's just something that we need to realize is there's a big difference between something that's justified that I can do and something that's justified and that I have to do. Because the thing that's just justified, even though you are you know vindicated and everything, uh, you, we know that you're going to go through hell in terms of dealing with the media, uh, in terms of being possibly charged with a crime, uh, having to go perhaps through a lengthy court trial, Uh, even though somebody would call that a win, I think we would call that just surviving. And so I think Mm -hmm. all of those are important factors to take in place. So Lee Weems, kudos, can I shoot him, may I shoot him, must I shoot him? We really want to select
0: must I shoot him. And Don, I think from a legal perspective, when you're defending an armed defender legally, if they acted with the must I shoot mentality, And they made a couple of mistakes or a misperception and ended up really being in the may I shoot. They get a lot more uh, forgivability than the person who is mentally operating from the may I shoot perspective. And they make a mistake or two in perception and they end up in that first, you know, can I shoot or I shouldn't have shot category. Do you know what I'm saying there? I think I do. You know,
1: when a person is being prosecuted in a self-defense case, the whole thing starts, of course, with the defender having acknowledged, yes, number one, they were the person involved in the incident. They did what they are accused of, meaning they used deadly force, which either killed or seriously injured the other person. So 95% of the prosecutor's case is already made at that point. However, the claim is I was justified because I was attacked and I had no recourse physically um, but to defend myself using that level of force, and therefore my conduct was was justified. Of course, the prosecutor can rebut that claim, and the defense must put on some evidence of self-defense even to to get it in front of the jury, the prosecutor will typically rebut those claims by saying, you didn't have to shoot the guy. You did so because you were angry, or you could have avoided the fatal conflict by just exercising reasonable judgment. So you acted unreasonably. And anytime you put yourself in a situation where you had opportunities to de-escalate, you had opportunities to avoid... uh, You you set yourself up for the argument that will ultimately put your self-defense claim at risk. And yes, um, I think you get the benefit of the doubt in many situations, especially if you're at home or if you're attacked at your place of business or in your car. Um, And I think generally, if it's clear that you were attacked and you had to defend yourself in so-called stand your ground states you don't have to legally retreat but nonetheless when you take all of those extra steps when you may shoot but you didn't absolutely have to because you had the chance to de-escalate you had the chance to avoid you had a chance to do something that gave you more opportunity to assess more time to to operationally decide what you had to do and you still had no choice. Yes, you're going to get the benefit of the doubt, in my view, because you've shut those, you've shut down those avenues that prosecutors like to go down to, um, to refute a self-defense claim.
0: We're going to transition now to the idea of being the initial aggressor or provoking the conflict. It's difficult to claim self-defense if you're the one who started the fight. There's a couple. You know, Don, that in a lot of states there's codicils to the core self-defense justification for the use of deadly force, which we've said was that you have a reasonable belief that you faced an imminent threat of great bodily harm or death. But one of the things that can get in the way there is in most places – you can't be the first aggressor you can't be the one who picked that fight and it got out of control from you and then you use deadly force except for some extenuating circumstances so maybe it's worth talking a little bit about what legally a first aggressor is yeah
1: that's a really good point because of course also when a case is being evaluated whether self-defense was lawful under the circumstances, there's going to be a focus on who started it. Because if you are legally considered the initial aggressor, you may very well not have any right to claim self-defense. Legally, uh, the initial aggressor, I think in very basic terms, is that you commit the first crime in a sense. You, You strike the first blow, you make the first credible threat. You're the person that actually starts the wheel turning that puts someone else on notice that you are being aggressive. I don't think that words are typically enough. I don't think there's enough just and people forget I think that you can argue with someone you can call them all sorts of names SOB you hear that in the road rage stuff all the time you can even stand and wave your arms around if you're a few feet away if you're just angry or loud or or something that's not initiating legally if you assault someone if you raise your hand and, and approach them then you become the initial aggressor and the other person has the right to defend themselves against you. Um, and, and, if you and they do and you get hurt or uh, then you can't very well turn around and say that person attacked me and I'm going to claim self-defense for what you did after the fact. Another sort of corollary to this idea of initial aggressor, I think, is provocation provocation is also a legal term that if the prosecutor is able to show that the defender uh, I love the word provocateur so I'll use that right now it the defender is the provocateur if the de- provoked the incident they also lose the right to self-defense there were some claims in the Rittenhouse case that Kyle Rittenhouse was the tried to provoked some of the violence that was used. Now, in a legal context, and this varies somewhat from state to state, but if you are provoking an individual, the concept there is that you're doing something almost as if you're baiting them. You're saying things, you're doing things with the expectation that they will respond physically. And when they do respond, the notion of provocation is that gives you the excuse to, to then attack them. So you sort of bait them into doing something, and then when they do, then you go to town. So if that scenario, that sequence is shown, that would be provocation and that you would lose the right to defend yourself. You, you can imagine the scenarios, right? You, you, we all can think about people arguing back and forth
0: or taunting, baiting. That sort of thing, or I dare you sort of thing. Steve, I saw you nodding your head uh, in agreement with Don there. What's your perspective on that uh, provoking and first aggressor, provocateuring, if you will? (laughs) I'm going to use that for a screen name, I
1: think. Provocateuring. Although I may not want to do that, right? If I have to defend a uh, self-defense claim later, I don't want to be on social media or out there as the provocateur.
2: I think that was incredibly, you know, uh, spot on, and uh, we, as soon as we put that firearm on, uh, we've just set ourselves apart from everyone else in terms of our ability to go up and engage in a confrontation with another person. Any time that we do that, the danger that it may escalate and turn into something that we did not intend it to do, that exists. Uh, it seems like. Uh, In today's world, uh, people are a little bit more impolite than perhaps they were back in the days when everyone was armed. You know, I used to say that armed society is a polite society. Uh, To a certain extent, uh, you see confrontations, you see people video that, people think it's cool and all that other stuff. And it's really difficult for me at times to wanna keep my mouth shut and not confront someone that just did something that was just totally offensive to me or, you know, maybe they said something that was derogatory to one of my, one of my family members while I was present and everything, you know, you want to stand up for them and everything that really it's in our best interest to just, you know, go ahead, uh, walk away from those situations. I always try to console myself by thinking that anybody that walks around that hot tempered and, uh, they probably have plenty of difficulty in their own life without me getting involved. And so I think that's really, really important for concealed carriers to understand that. I think that, Don, is that where basically, you know, like if you say that was Andrew Bronk's five elements of self-defense, I think that might come under innocence. Is that possible? If you engaged in something that might go to mutual combat or that was mutual combat, then your self-defense claim, probably evaporates unless you at that particular point make some, you know, heroic attempt to disengage and then that person continues. But any time that you get involved in a confrontation like that, uh, perhaps that kind of uh, perhaps challenges, you know, any uh, claim of innocence on your part.
1: Yeah, I think that precisely is what he's talking about. You have to have clean hands. You know, you have to go into this not as someone looking for a fight, provoking a fight, making the first step. Um, You also touched upon how this thing can play out because, yes, you can actually initiate a fight if you intend it to be at a certain level. You know, you guys are arguing and you raise your hand, you're going to hit somebody open-handed or you push him in the chest, and that's a battery, that's a crime, you can't do that. Uh, And the other person responds disproportionately uh, to the level of force that you used. If all of a sudden you've pushed him in the chest and they raise that baseball bat. Now, you may have lost self-defense if he defends himself against you using the same force to continue your attack. But if he escalates it, if he raises it up to a higher level of force, including deadly weapons, then you may have lost your initial right to self-defense, but you can regain it, especially if you have attempted to withdraw. If you say, I don't want any part of this now, and they become the attacker, especially if they use more force, then you have the you can sort of regain your right. But I think what Andrew Branca talks about in terms of... Um, Innocence is exactly right. You can't have started this thing down that path.
2: Did we see an example of that in the Draca case? When the boyfriend came, pushed Draca, he tumbled to the ground, and then Draca went for a gun and the guy started backing off? He, at that particular point, he became an innocent party or or, or less uh, guilty than he was before.
0: Sure, yeah, he I, I, the... I... Go ahead, Don.
1: Uh, A handicap parking spot case. Yeah. Uh, it, it seemed that uh, that was one of the interesting questions in the case, wasn't it? What was happening at that point? Was the attack going to continue against Draca once he was knocked down to the ground? Uh, maybe. There seemed to be some movement toward him. But then when Draca displayed the firearm, the video that... W- analyzed by microsecond you know, <laughs> to see who was doing what and whether it was realistic and although it was accurate physically whether it was realistic in terms of what the thinking was who knows but it was clear that the attacker began to step back and I think at that point it's pretty evident he's withdrawing his physical attack anyway.
0: And, and where I, I think we see a lot of cases where people get in trouble with the provocation thing is if you're going to go confront your neighbor for stealing your lawnmower or keeping it when he borrowed it for too long or if you're going to confront your daughter's deadbeat boyfriend or your girlfriend's new lover and you go over there and you are afraid that it might come to blows. And then you think to yourself, well, I'll take my gun just in case. Now you've gone someplace, started a (laughs) confrontation that had the potential to turn violent. And you anticipated that by bringing your gun that starts you off legally on shaky ground when it comes to making your self-defense claim. Yeah. It makes
1: me think back to uh, a TV ad campaign. You're way too young to remember this, but Steve might. Steve might. Back in the day, there was an actor by the name of Robert Conrad. He was in a, a show, Wild, Wild West, among other things. And he did a promotion for uh, Duracell batteries. Steve, do you remember this? He would take a battery and put it on his shoulder, kind of put it on his shoulder, and then dare people to knock it off. So, in my mind, that's classic provocation, isn't it? He's inviting. The contact and you you can tell just he he acted like he was a hard case. I don't know if he was or not, but you could picture what was going on and the message of the ad was, Yeah, go ahead, try it. Dare I dare you to try. And then of course who's gonna get their butt kicked, right? At that
0: point. But that to me that's classic provocation. I told you we get to some of those rare circumstances where the use of deadly force is justifiable in that circumstance beyond the imminent belief of great bodily injury or death. And in a lot of places, the statutes allow for the use of deadly force to stop a forcible felony. I've asked Don West to explain to us just what a forcible felony is and what sorts of forcible felonies would potentially justify the use of deadly force. Here's Don. Violence toward
1: you as a crime victim of a certain level or certain degree, that's very vague and we'll talk about that in more detail. But it is a separate, in my view, it's a separate theory for the use of force, uh, including deadly force separate from the idea that in the core traditional self-defense context, you may use deadly force in response to an immediate or imminent threat of great bodily harm or force, a great bodily harm or death. In this notion of aggravated felony context, it is when you are a potential or someone else near you at the time that you may try to protect appears to be and I'll say imminent, I don't know that the statutes necessarily use the word imminent or immediate, but basically that you are the victim of a violent crime of some sort. So typically, if you are walking down the street and someone attempts to rob you, points a a firearm at you, Uh, a knife perhaps threatens you with it for the purpose of robbing you taking your property by force you would be then the victim of an attempted robbery and in many jurisdictions you have the right to use deadly force to prevent the imminent commission of a forcible felony well within that category of forcible felony uh Robbery, armed robbery, would typically be included. Certain levels of kidnapping, uh, aggravated kidnapping is a term in some states, or kidnapping in others, depending on how it's defined. We know how life threatening kidnapping is and what a serious crime it is. Sexual assault would be in that category typically. Uh, It may even extend to defending property that you have from those life-threatening, serious property crimes, uh, arson, for example. Uh, Florida happens to be a state where the forcible felony category is extensive. Almost any violent felony would uh, allow you to use deadly force to prevent the imminent commission of that felony. Robbery, rape, kidnapping, I think... uh, certain levels of aggravated battery and assault, any level of murder, that that kind of stuff. So that's the category we're talking about. It may differ from state to state as to which articulated crimes are included for which you may use deadly force to prevent the commission of, but that's the concept. So I view it as sort of two parallel but different theories of self-defense. One is the direct response to the imminent threat of great bodily harm or death to you or or another. And the other then is to prevent the imminent commission of the violent felony or the forcible felony. The forcible felony itself that you are seeking to prevent doesn't necessarily have to cause serious bodily harm or death. Maybe it's possible that it could, but you can rob somebody Arguably, I suppose, you could even have a sexual assault of somebody. You could kidnap somebody without seriously injuring them. But the crime is so heinous, so offensive to a civilized society that in most jurisdictions, the law allows you to use deadly force to prevent someone from committing those crimes. Did I leave any gaps in that? I tried to sort of paint it with a pretty broad brush, but... Um, you don't have to be a crime victim if you fall into one of these serious crime areas. You can stop that from happening to you or to someone else. Up into including deadly force in most places.
0: And Steve, didn't it sound like a lot of those things are where, where there's violence implied? And although the maybe the imminence of death, it, it's a step or two away if someone kidnaps someone the chances that they're going to be seriously harmed or killed at a second location is super high. If someone actually forcibly breaks into your house, the the chance that they intend to harm you has elevated greatly, even if you're not immediately imminently, as in right now, fearing that death or serious injury, right? The same thing with a robbery. I, I think the implied contract there is your money or your life, right? And if you give up your money, then perhaps they'll spare your life. That I see more and more cases where that's not the case, but you don't have to wait around to find out. This forcible felony law gives you the opportunity to use some discretion there. Is that, is that how you read it, Steve?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, one of the main reasons that uh, I, I'm glad to see this included in this podcast is because in so many instances, uh, students are concealed carriers that perhaps uh, they are you know, applying for a concealed carry weapon, whatever, they go through courses, you know, they talk about the use of force, they say it's only applicable in the event that imminent uh, great bodily injury or death is possible. It doesn't address some of these other things, which a lot of times kind of leaves concealed carriers in limbo as to, well, what can I do? What should I do if someone tries to snatch my child? or they tried to carjack me or that thing. Because at that particular moment, I don't know that I'm in imminent danger of grave bodily injury or death. And so I think it was real important to bring this particular topic up to you know, uh, clarify to concealed carriers that, yes, you have the right to protect yourself and your loved ones, your children, your spouse, uh, whomever, uh, in the event that they are the target of one of these crimes.
1: Let, let, let me interrupt or include in this part of the conversation. Steve, thank you. That's, that's really helpful. But I also want to talk about the other side of it. What's not the imminent commission of a forcible felony or what kinds of crimes, clear crimes, that you may be a victim of or a witness to that you cannot use deadly force to prevent. You don't want to shoot somebody who's trying to steal your car, for example, you don't want to shoot somebody who has just stolen your bicycle and is riding off with it. Most of the property crimes, uh, except for the the real highly potentially violent and death, uh, deadly ones like arson. Uh, some states, a burglary, uh, separate and apart from the notion of defending your home against an intruder. But someone, even that snatches your purse some places that's robbery some places it's not it kind of depends on the amount of force and whether there's a risk of injury to you. some states wouldn't include it even if it is considered a level of kidnap or a level of of robbery i think texas if i'm not mistaken may have two categories of kidnapping one is called kidnapping and one is aggravated kidnapping whereas there's a kind of abduction or false imprisonment Style kidnapping that would not automatically allow you to use deadly force. It might have to fit that category of aggravated kidnapping, which poses such a great threat. So, just the idea that there are certain kinds of violent, forcible felonies for which you are legally allowed to use deadly force to prevent, uh, there are lots and lots of crimes for which you can't. So, I would encourage people as they study and become more familiar with what Andrew Branca calls the boundaries, uh, the legal boundaries, that you also pay attention to those things so that you don't do something foolish by using uh, lethal force to prevent a, a theft. No matter how outrageous or how offended you are or how brazen the person is, you don't want to put yourself in legal jeopardy.
0: Well, and uh, wouldn't you say that for, from a legal perspective, defending somebody charged with the use of lethal force in response to a forcible felony there's a lot more ambiguity there there's a you know if it's stopping someone who seems to have the ability opportunity intent to kill you that's a clearer cut case of self-defense but if you're using that deadly force to stop a crime that is less immediate and more ambiguous there's a little bit more challenge on the legal defense side of course, you know, this
1: is all going to be screened at different stages by different people seeing ultimately whether what you did was reasonable. And while you have to decide for yourself, it was reasonable. The other people get to decide ultimately whether what you did was reasonable. And frankly, in my view, even if there might be a technical defense, meaning that you may, as opposed to must in a violent felony or potentially violent felony, you don't want to take the chance unless you really believe you need to do that to protect your life or someone else's. Uh, there are all sorts of robberies, which is a uh, taking by force or threat of force that really aren't life-threatening. They, um, If somebody stands in front of you and says, give me your wallet, or I'm going to slap you with this open fist, or I'm going to knock you down, there are lots of very aggressive I'll call them homeless, displaced people that get pretty aggressive with people and they may even make demands that might technically qualify as robbery. But obviously though, the context of that is that you don't really feel fear, fear that you're going to be seriously injured. And what they're asking for basically is a, a forced donation. And you don't wanna be taking your gun out and shooting those people.
2: Uh, something though I might add is in a lot of uh, strong arm robberies, uh, you're actually more likely to be injured in one of those uh, than one in which a, a weapon was actually used. And uh, the thought process behind that, from what I understand, is that I'm going to have to show this person that I have the ability to injure them or kill them, uh, which is different than just displaying a weapon. And so something to you know be mindful of is there's one thing to, you know, someone slaps you or even punches you and knocks you down and starts grabbing your stuff, as opposed to that person that you, and you see this a lot of times, is the victim won't surrender their purse or they won't surrender their their wallet. And then in that particular instance, you'll see the attacker continues to strike them. So that's something to consider is that may very well that for instance, that's your, your, your mother, or that's your, your aunt, or that's someone else that does not have the ability to defend themselves at that time, that once that you've been knocked to the ground, uh, continuing to try to put, uh, protect your possessions is probably a very serious mistake. And uh, it, it's something that, I mean, we should take some consideration to. And uh, one of the things that you'll see from time to time is that you will see someone that's been assaulted that kind of makes a lame attempt to retrieve a weapon right in the middle of the assault. And uh, in those particular instances, they typically do not turn out well for the, for the victim because the attacker just simply overpowers them, takes the weapon away from them, even shoots them with the, uh, the weapon at some times
1: that That's brilliant assessment, Steve. Thank you. I didn't want to mislead anybody by suggesting that they shouldn't and uh, use necessary force to protect themselves, obviously, but I agree with you. I don't think you necessarily want to use the force to protect your property. That's a tough one. You know that that's a really tough one. you You're going to be angry and indignant and offended. That someone dares display a weapon and want your stuff and you want to shoot them right you want to punish them essentially for doing what they're doing but you've got a calculation of the value of the property the value of the risk of injury to yourself and all of that stuff that's happening in that in that moment but uh, do you agree it's sort of the default setting is don't take any chances with your life and uh, um, don't engage if you can avoid and and if you think this is fascinating to me i don't claim to know anything about it the idea of how do you assess if someone is approaching you with a weapon and it's clear to you that they're doing it to intimidate you in surrendering your property it's an armed robbery how do you assess whether you think that if you give them your money they'll go away or if you give them your money They'll shoot you anyway, or if you don't give them your money, they'll shoot you. Or if you don't give them their money, your money, they'll go away. I mean, the whole thing is must be extremely difficult to assess at that moment. Now, is there training? Is there stuff you can do to get better at that? Are there body cues? Is there Craig Douglas insight into that stuff?
2: Uh, unfortunately, no. There have been many instances where the, uh, and and this has actually happened to one of Tom Given's students who was not armed at the time, in which he went ahead, surrendered his billfold, and then the person shot him. Uh, He was arrested, taken to trial. They asked him why he shot the other person. He goes, well, I was having a really a bad day and I wanted someone Mm -hmm. else to have one too. And so for us, we really have to assume that the worst case scenario, is possible, and uh, if you have the skills and you have the tools, then uh, my response would be is I'm going to defend myself as long as my life remains at risk at the first opportunity, which in many instances Mm -hmm. means I can initially bide my time and wait for a break in the attacker's attention from either me to the possession or looking around to see if there's anyone else in. And then if I've got the skills right then, uh, that's when I would make my move.
1: Circling back, uh, I'm sorry, John, circling back, that's what you were talking about when you talked about the ability to draw, um, use the force, doing it quickly, confidently, and, and safely. So you basically have to know How to do that within the time frame that you think you're going to have?
2: Yes, 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 yes. Uh, How that person positions their head uh, has an effect on that time frame. For instance, if they glance off to the side, you know, you might have—I don't know—you know, maybe half a second, three-quarter a second to initiate action. If they completely turn so you can see the inside of their ear, uh, you may have a second and a half. Uh, One of the things that uh, is important for us to all remember is that we have what's called a reactionary gap. And so when that person confronts me, uh, no matter how skilled and how trained I am, there's going to be a reactionary gap in which I see what's going on. I process what's going on and I make a decision to act and then I act upon it. And the faster I can go through that cycle, it's called the OODA loop uh, observe, orient, decide, act, uh, if I can go through my cycle faster than the other person, then I had the advantage. So basically I see, well, let's just say he selected me as a victim. So he saw me, he focused on me, he decided what to do and he acted. Okay. Now he's ahead of me. So now I see him and I have to observe that and I have to decide what I'm going to do. And then I have to act. Okay. So all of that takes time and it can be you know, a quarter of a second to a full second. Now, if that person who is robbing me sees me uh, complying, yes, sir, here it is, take it is, hand it off, and then he looks away and I move, guess what? He's back in the cycle of having to observe, orient, decide, act, and by that time, I'm all ready to act. And so Mm -hmm. having those Mm -hmm. skills simply means that it doesn't mean I'm not going to get killed or it doesn't mean I'm not going to get shot, but it means it greatly increases not only my chances of surviving this situation, but knowing I have these skills also perhaps mitigates to some uh, degree the need to use force too quickly because the situation is still ambiguous. So I know that I don't have to. It's not going to take me four or five seconds to respond effectively. And this person is doing something that's okay. This is concerning to me. Okay. I've got time. I pick him up at a greater distance. Hey man, do you mind staying back? I start repositioning. Okay. I've got those skills. I have the ability to do that so that if then he goes ahead or she, or they play their hand, I'm in a better position to respond.
0: Uh Yeah. You know, to your point on there's, a couple stories that I've encountered, and to what you're saying, Steve. You know, I worked on a case on behalf of a crime victim who was carjacked late at night, and the guys he gave him the keys, he gave him their his wallet, he gave him his phone, and they still shot him 13 times, and then ran over him with his own car, and he miraculously survived, right? And I met a retired marine captain who in his second career detected someone breaking into his house late at night and he got his pistol, he came out, he was in a a low ready position and he encountered the intruder and he gave them a quick assessment and he said, they're just kids and when they saw that they were detected and that he was armed, they ran off and he had a moment there where he could have legally and and understandably justifiably used deadly force and he didn't and uh there's those two instances just illustrate the broad scope of what's possible in these encounters how much uh intuition how much training uh how many different variables go into it and i think the reason that we've been able to continue having these conversations for six years and still never run out of things to talk about is because there's an infinite number of circumstances where somebody can be put in these life or death situations and have to make very important decisions very quickly that have extraordinary consequences not just physically life or death of the people involved but then legally in the wake for for the offender's families and um the rest of their lives All right, everybody, that's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. We'll be back again with Don and Steve talking about the fundamental elements that contribute to the justification for these deadly force in home defense cases. Until then, be smart, stay safe, take care. Of
1: course, who's going to get their butt kicked?